welcome to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast with your hosts, Jeremy Thake and Paul Schaeflein. Each week, you'll catch us speaking to expert developers about new tech, lessons learned, and opinions in this space. Hi, Paul. How are you? I'm doing well. How about yourself? Good, mate. I'm excited about this one. I'm always intrigued with the Fluent UI and the direction they're going in and just seeing the improvements they make across all of like the Microsoft services that leverage it and partners using it too. Makes for a good experience. So thanks for doing the uh, finding Micro out there and getting on the show. Yes, it was great to talk to him. Although I, I switched things up, and if you noticed, I, I pronounced his last name correctly, but screwed up his first name. <laughs> <laughs> and we, you just asked him as well how to pronounce his name, and then started the recording and completely got it wrong. We we are nothing but consistent when it comes to getting people's names wrong. Fortunately, he uh, he, he straightened it out, so that's great. But yes, uh, the, uh, the fluent stuff is very exciting to watch. Um, and you know, I didn't know if you, I didn't put this in our show notes, but I saw a little tweet. The fluent work is coming closer to SharePoint, and Kathy Dew was going to be uh, uh, working on that. So I, that reminds me, I should probably reach out to Kathy, see, have her come back for a visit. But yeah, the fluent stuff was great. Yeah, it's been a while. And then talking of SharePoint, that was a good segue. Boy, boy, have people been waiting for this news. The uh, SharePoint Online CSOM APIs, which have been around, what version was CSOM introduced? 2007? of SharePoint Server. Now there is a .NET standard version of those, I guess SDKs is the right way to put it, .NET SDKs, which means that you can now use that with .NET Core, I guess. I If I had a dollar for every time I saw someone in GitHub or at an MVP summit ask the SharePoint team when this was coming, I'd be very rich. So uh, they finally got around to doing it. Yeah, I agree. It has been long awaited. I still don't see the value of, of using it for new development. So I'm guessing these are just legacy apps that people want to move to cloud services. Yeah. Most likely Azure Functions is what I'm guessing. <laughs> so they want to be able to to use uh, new versions of, C, of CSOM up there. But yeah, so it's glad, I'm glad they got it done. It uh, As Lincoln said last week, everything you know, love, and hate about the CSOM is still there. It just runs on a on .NET standard. So that's a yeah. good thing. And, and I do want to just reiterate, it's .NET standard version 2 is what they've targeted. That's that's not the same as .NET Core. So you can use it on .NET Core 3.1. So you know the latest .NET Core will work. I saw a couple of people in in the call saying, why, why did you target .NET Core 2.0? And it's like, no, 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 it's .NET standard 2. So, um, which is the way things should go. So, yeah, uh, nice to see it moving on. And from, from a graph perspective, obviously, you know, working on what we would class as legacy APIs is surprising. But, you know, I guess the team made a decision that there was enough feedback that they needed to do this. And, and so it got pulled through. But ideally, we'd want you using the graph and our .NET SDKs, which work on Cora. You know, out of the box. Yeah, I think it's a case of what about the stuff that's not yet in the graph? Yeah, right. And that's so. that's the bit. And so this doesn't put pressure on the SharePoint team from our perspective to go put the APIs that are on the SharePoint CSOM APIs into the graph, um, which was what we were pushing them to do. It was like if you do that, you don't need to go do your the work on the uh, CSOM SDKs because. If you put all your APIs on the graph, we already have an SDK that supports core. But um, that, they decided to do it this way. And I guess it just highlights some of the challenges that we have day to day in our roles in the graph graph team. It's customers making demand and decisions made. And that's you just have to kind of get through with it. 
Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. It's a lot of legacy code people don't want to rewrite. So totally just want to lift and shift. Yeah, lift and shift. But if you are rewriting it and you want to use the graph SDK, you know, there's a library out there that'll help you get some SharePointy things. That's so right. I'll put a link in the show notes to the Microsoft Graph.Community library. So. Uh, um, I haven't looked at numbers recently. I wonder, I assume it's still being used, but <laughs> um, yeah, so that's a library I built that'll help you do. So when you have graph client dot sites, there, there's some request builders that I put in there to help you navigate the SharePoint REST API from the graph client object in, in your code. So it's kind of make it a, a unified surface, if you will, to get the both. So thanks for letting me take a plug on that. So help people out. That's good. And then found a post this week from Mark Rosnovich and in the Azure world. I, I read it. I didn't necessarily make sense to me, but what was it that he was talking about? Yeah, so this is uh, some improvements that are coming to the Azure Resource Manager templates. And if you go back uh, two or three episodes ago, I interviewed Sam Kogan, and we talked about infrastructure as code, and, and Sam was referring to a lot of the third-party tools and, and even the, uh, the Azure management uh, API. And this is an uh, improvement to there. The big one, of course, is that I could say dash what if on the command and it'll tell me what kind of things it'll do to my Azure subscription without actually doing them. So, you know, you don't delete something by accident. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. It, it's, it, I, I've been up to my elbows in, in Azure Resource Manager stuff for the last couple of weeks uh, as we scale out our service. So it's great stuff to see. And obviously, if you're not following Mike Rusinovich, you should be anyways, because he talks about all things azure developer so so great oh he's one of the smartest guys in the company too yeah super nice guy and then talking of other people i don't think you can talk to this person without smiling i think john white um if you ever see him speak or meeting with a conference or listen to his podcast he does with um jason himmelstein he just is just infectiously happy happiness comes about and he is very passionate about power bi and shows from a developer perspective, which I think is really cool. And we're actually doing some stuff around App Insights at the moment with Graph Explorer to get more anonymous data on how Graph Explorer features are being used now that we've rewritten a whole platform in React. And so his blog post talks about taking App Insights and log analytics data through the direct query capabilities of Power BI and um, getting those working. So I've already sent this article off to my dev team in uh, Kenya to see, plug away at this to see what kind of cool reports we can get out of this so that I can see what features are being used in the products. And if you haven't used App Insights before, I'd highly check it out. I'm assuming you, your, your team uses it for what you do with um, adding 365? Yes, uh, we do. And, and not so much... Obviously, our, our analytics package is going to aggregate data into a database, which is designed for reporting. But this is kind of nice. The log analytics piece is really kind of what caught my eye because um, you, part of our process is we are running things through you know Azure front door and, and the web application firewall. And so traffic is blocked if it's suspicious. And so every time we push a new release into our test environment, I want to make sure that we're not doing something that gets blocked, right? I'd, I'd hate to say it's good to go and a customer can't get there because of the firewall issue. And oh, so right. I have to go through and, and before this, before I saw this blog post, I'd have to go and download a bunch of files and mash them all together to see if the firewall logs, what, what was being blocked, what was being allowed, right? So the, I'm excited to go through with this proxy he talks about and connect that together so I don't have to do that manual massaging of data. Although John probably could do it in three clicks, but Paul's not quite as smart as John, so it takes me a long time. But <laughs> but yeah, so yes, to answer your question, yes, we're using it and it's great to see how the log analytics stuff can be connected in here. So I really like this. 
That's cool. And then um, another wonderful blogger that's been around for ages and basically was always the first one I'd check when I first started in my career 15 years ago when he was blogging about SharePoint. But Waldeck wrote a post around another area of kind of technology that relates around graph. What, what was he writing about? So, so there has been some improvements to the Azure portal in the Azure application, Azure AD uh, registration that lets you, it's kind of a wizard that'll let you go through and it's really trying to help you set the right knobs and buttons for an Azure app registration to get the right thing, right? Because there's delegated and, and um, app only permissions is easy to understand, but what about how the applications connect? Is it a web page? Is it a single page app? Is it a daemon application? So based on those choices, the configuration is different, right? So for example, I don't need a redirect URI if I'm not, my users aren't in a web page, right? But it wasn't easy to understand that necessarily when you see the big wall of links, right? So this little wizardy thing that's called an integration assistant will help you go through and you answer questions and based on how you answer, it gets you in the right place. So trying to get you into the pit of success, which is always uh, always good. Yeah, and it does a bunch of rule stuff as well. Um, Lesher is the PM on this um, out of the identity team. And we have like a monthly cadence specifically around app registration dev experience to give you feedback from a graph lens. Um, and so there's a bunch of rules in there that we recommend based on what we've experienced with customers configuring app registrations, you know, for daemon apps or... Um, which apparently we're going to be changing the name of what we call like the daemon or non-interactive application types to robots, which is interesting. Yeah, but if you didn't grow up in the Linux area, you don't know what a daemon app is, right? So why is it called it? Yeah, so... It's very true. I mean, I guess daemon has a little bit of a negative (laughs) connotation towards it, whereas robot... Well, maybe robots does too, I don't know. There's going to be more work they do in this space around like if you've got permissions in your applications, but you're not using it, that integration assistant will kind of flag in the rules and, and, you know, prompt you to maybe remove those permissions if your application actually isn't using it in the code that's executed. So there's, there's going to be lots of like polish that it's going to do to try and make the uh, applications as streamlined as possible, you know, so that even if you really don't understand what you're doing when you follow instructions to create these applications in the first place, the these tooling will help you to do the right things for it, like a best practices aspect, which is really neat. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of great stuff coming out of the identity team. You know, we, we interviewed a couple of them on the libraries, but even just the, the UI and, and the way things are going there it's and, and the services, that there's a lot of stuff coming out of there. Great to see. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, you mentioned, you know, Waldeck's been around forever and we all love Waldeck. He's agreed to come back on. So we'll get an update on his, what he's been doing in the last year or so since he's been on. So be listen for that coming up. Yeah, yeah. He's very busy over there in PMP land with a bunch of stuff with Office 365 CLI and things. So it'd be good to get him on. Cool. Well, um, this week's show, as we mentioned at the beginning, was around Fluent UI. We're going pretty deep. So enjoyed the show. And again, if you've got feedback for us, please reach out to us on the M365 Dev Podcast Twitter handle or our direct handles. And um, we'll go hunt someone to go ask the questions to um, internally at Microsoft or, or beyond. Thanks, Paul. Thanks. See you. So this week on the episode, we have Mika Godbolt. How are you doing today, Mika? Micah, close Micah, enough. Micah, I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> that was inevitable. Oh, I know, amazing. I know Great. my brain freeze. So um, welcome, Micah. <laughs> welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. appreciate you bringing me on. Um, why don't you uh, give us a, a little bit overview of who you are, what you do? 
Sure. Um, I, I've worn a number of hats, um, but over the years I've been working with um, UI Fabric or Fluent UI, whatever you want to call it today, um, as an engineer, uh, a UI developer, as a PM. Um, I don't think there's any hats left for me to wear, so I'm, I'm currently a developer working on the project, um, working on numerous things, um, working on website, documentation, um, uh, helping updates on controls, fi fixing bugs, kind of whatever you have done it all and, and enjoy working within that space and within design systems and within Fluent UI. And so you mentioned all the various names. So let's start out of the gate there, right? So uh, what is it called today and what would it have been called before? And what's the best <laughs> way to address this thing? <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll roll it back. I'll do the, the before first. So uh, UI Fabric was a project that came out of um, really ODSP. OneDrive SharePoint was where I joined um, almost four years ago. Um, and it was a, just a collection of React controls that we had built uh, to share across OneDrive and SharePoint, which was going React as well as as um, Outlook was going React and a couple other apps uh, were all kind of going React at the same time. And we recognized this was a great space and an opportunity to, hey, let's align on some controls. So we built this shared set of controls and started sharing those across those apps. And uh, it was successful. And we started adding some more controls and so forth. And then other people were like, hey, you got some React controls? <laughs> and, and word started to get it out and more people started using it. And it, you have a, one of those snowball effects where um, you know once you get some momentum, it just keeps building and building and building. And we got to a point where it was too big to just have it as kind of a, a side project organized between a few different teams. And it actually got staffed and, and pulled into uh, the, the greater org in general and um, actually funded to be to be built and continue to move forward. Um, around a year or so after I kind of started with that, there was also this big push within Microsoft uh, to create Fluent UI uh, or to create the Fluent design system. I think it's a better way to say it. Build, I think, like two, three years ago. And um, we were like, whoa, a design system. That's that's cool. We've been, you know, we've been building UI fabric for a long time. That's, that's neat. They're doing that. So um, there's this kind of this slow, inevitable like um, uh, space where we're eventually going to hit each other. As we became more of a design system, as uh, Fluent design system became more of UI frameworks, um, there, there's a point at which we had to kind of hit each other because um, we were coming to that same inevitable point. And so that happened within this last year, recognizing that you know you, the, this fabric name doesn't really mean much within the greater sense of Microsoft. And there's always already this established name with Influence. Um, and it would make way more sense for us to all come under this banner of Fluent UI and having this, this single set of, uh, of frameworks that allow us to build out um, Fluent experiences. Because Fabric had already moved to like, we'd already moved our design language to match Fluent. So we were basically fluent by everything except name. So again, it was this inevitable connection, confusing inevitable connection, that we all just need to come out of that singular banner and, and do so. So where we're at now makes a lot more sense than where we're at six, eight months ago, is that fluent is the design system at Microsoft. Fluent UI is a collection of UI frameworks that allow you to build on various platforms, various OSs. And at this point, Fluent UI React is obviously the, the most established one, um, having this pedigree within uh, UI Fabric over the last four plus years. Uh, but we've also are building out uh, React Native uh, for iOS, Android, Windows, and Mac. So huge project there within React Native. We also have a set of controls uh, for Android uh, with Kotlin, um, as well as iOS and Mac. 
pretty much across the board. Whatever you need to be building in, you can do so with a UI framework that builds off of Fluent UI. Um, there's also uh, WinUI, just to kind of add a little more confusion. Again, like all of these UI frameworks kind of coming to this, this colliding point. WinUI has actually been around for a number of years as well. And, and that's a set of XAML controls that are implemented uh, the, the Fluent UI framework. So again, Fluent was a design system. WinUI was built up and, and started implementing those, those controls. So if you looked at at a, at a WinUI controlled, um, they looked exactly like fabric controls. And so you have these two things not named Fluent at all that are that are both implementing Fluent. So what we're trying to get to is a point where everything's under this one banner. Um, WinUI is still WinUI. I, I don't know the plans for aligning that name-wise, but it's basically it does the same thing of implementing all of those controls within that, that XAML language. So if that's your target and what you're building with, you have a set of controls that can do that. So that kind of brings us to where we're at now, a, a, a family of uh, UI frameworks to build on any platform and any OS, the Fluent Design System. <sighs> and we use this both internally and externally, right? Correct. Uh, this is, we're not designing this just for ourselves and we're not designing this just for our developers externally exactly the we've always had a first and third party story within pretty much anything that we build i mean in, most things we build are platforms that third parties then build on top of so the the idea of having these frameworks is not just you know for us being able to build out our apps and share ui and whatnot but it's also to uh to make sure that we have a set of of controls that uh third parties can build on that allow you to tap in not just the look and feel of of, of the application, but the functionality, uh, the interaction, the accessibility, uh, the various theming, uh, light mode, dark mode, um, high contrast, and all those types of things. We want to get uh, anyone that's building for these platforms as much of a foundation as possible. Stone, you, you touch on the look and feel and, and the themes and stuff, and that, that's you know, the big question is why do I want to use these controls as opposed to something else that's out in the world? And, and obviously, as a partner, having the something look like Office or Microsoft 365 is it valid? But from your side, what is it you're trying to, to accomplish or why would people want to use these this library instead of a different one? Certainly, and that's something we, we always, you know, I don't say struggle with, but we always make sure that we're looking at that value proposition of you know, why would someone use this versus Material or Ant or any of the other ones that are out there. They're doing great jobs. <laughs> when you're building experience, you want some consistency. You don't want your third-party application to stick out like this little sore thumb within this other ecosystem. So if you are building an experience that's going to fit inside of Azure and fit inside of Office, fit inside of Teams, you don't want it to stand out as this like something that just looks completely different, works completely different, has different keyboard shortcuts, has a different like accessibility model, so on and so forth. Like you don't want it to be this jarring experience for user to go from the first party experience to some third party experience is trying to fit in to that first party experience. So that's the main thing is, you know, just as an application, we don't want someone going from Outlook over to Word to feel like, whoa, this is something completely different. Like what? nothing works the same, nothing looks the same. You know, the, the feature set, the accessibility of, of this versus that is completely different. It, it's, it'll be a jarring experience for user. So in the same respect, we don't want someone going from PowerPoint into some add-in and it just being such a jarring experience that it feels like you've jumped out of the product into something completely different. So whether it's you know keyboarding through a menu, whether it is uh, theming and light mode and dark mode, or just being able to like take on the various themes of the application, uh, we want to make sure 
that, um, or, or third parties would want to make sure that the things that they build fit into that application and feel as seamless as possible. And and that that's another leads me another thing is right. If I'm going to be doing uh, an add-in in Outlook or I'm going to be doing a SharePoint web part, there's a, a natural fit there, and that that kind of fits in. A lot of our audience is in that same space as well, so we, you know the the React controls kind of make sense. But you hinted before how there's all these these other other sets of of things, and and is it the same story for them? If I'm building a Windows thing and I want it to look like the the Microsoft theme, I want to use these controls, or is it more to it than that? I, I, pardon me, I'm not a Windows guy, so yeah. Oh no, no, that's I, that's exactly it. Like, it, yeah, if you're if you're trying to build a Windows application, if you want it to fit in and look like a Windows app, and you don't want to have to build your own UI with your own set of colors, your own set of functionality to try and make it match what it looks like, what the rest of the OS is doing. That's the goal of these UI frameworks is to give you the set of tools you need to to build out something that looks native on that platform. And well, I guess one of the reasons WinUI is a little different is that like we own that platform already. Like we're not a guest there where we are on the web or an iOS or Android where, you know, where iOS and Android already have native kits to them. But for Fluent, we kind of have our own look and feel and set of styles and so forth that as a guest on that platform, that's the styles that we use. And if someone else wanted to replicate that, it would take a bunch of work to be able to replicate that. So we just want to make sure that if you want to build an experience that fits into, say, with Azure, we do this same kind of concept of like, you know, we're building this app that you know, that wants to live kind of within the Azure ecosystem. And, you know, even if it's going to be a completely third-party like experience, like not embedded inside of Azure, you want it to look and feel like Azure. How much work would that be to try and follow the design system that's in Azure right now and rebuild everything inside of there versus, hey, I've got a set of controls and a theme. Now I look like Azure. I can build something out that looks like it fits. It's a seamless experience back and forth. And it's not just matching it today, but it's also feeling confident that if things change over time, that you'll be able to pick up those changes easily. Themes change, you know, we go rounded corners, drop shadows, whatever the case is, that you're not going to have to spend a whole bunch of effort kind of chasing that that design system all over the place that you'll be able to follow along. So when you're talking about Azure, do you mean like the Azure portal experience or...? Exactly. Yeah, we. Okay. Um, there's a, a bit longer story there with Azure, and that um, Azure itself is is still not using React. But we we worked with um, the Azure team at one point to build out a theme for Fluent UI that gives you that Azure look, the the colors and just the the, the style of the controls and so forth. So because we had um, a bunch of Azure teams locally that wanted to build out experiences that would fit and look like Azure, but they, they wanted to build React apps, basically. You know, they didn't want to have to build on the platform that was there because it was completely separate. So being able to use Fluent UI and be able to use the theming that Fluent UI provides, they were able to build, and it's, it's actually available available on, on, our, on our GitHub repo. It's completely open source. You can check it out. You can use it. A set of themes or a theme, actually a dark light theme, I think a couple of themes, um, that allow you to basically make Fluent UI look like an Azure app. They give you that style, those colors, and that look. So they can now build a React app that looks like it would fit inside of Azure. If you jump back and forth from Azure into this app, it would be a seamless experience and it would look and feel the same. The so now that leads to my next next question. You're building a set of tools, and now you've talked to how the the Azure team can do something. And obviously, we've seen the SharePoint team using it, and and the Microsoft Teams has got something similar. How is it that you 
get these controls into the products? How does Microsoft? So, so uh, um, is, is it as simple as, you know, but the, the product teams are going to copy paste and we're, we're good to go? Or do we have to play nice? How does that how does that work? I guess the struggle is who's using what versions of this? And, and I'd like to minimize <laughs> that pain if I could. <laughs> Yeah, and that you know that's always that's a it's a huge story and challenge that that we kind of deal with with JavaScript is to host or not to host. That is the question um, because there's there's two approaches. One is you tell third party developers just bring all your code, bring all the code that you need, bundle it up and drop it into the application. So your version of React, your version of Fluent UI, your version of whatever Lodash, whatever plugins you want, bring all that code over and drop it in and, and work. That works in a lot of places. That works in a lot of iframe scenarios um, where you need to have that kind of separation. Um, but obviously, it's going to be a lot heavier. The, the flip side of that is everything is locked down. Everything is completely static. And all you can do is write code against the specific versions. And then we will supply all of you know the, the React and Fluent UI and if Lodash is even available or whatever the case is. Which is okay, you, you avoid some of the duplication, but now you have the question of, well, how do we upgrade to a newer version of this like global React and break hundreds of applications that were you know relying on some deprecated API or something like that? So I think those stories are still being worked out the best way to do that. I, I, I personally don't work in that space as much to give a definitive answer. I know it's hard. And I know, especially within SharePoint, that's kind of been a a struggle to be able to kind of keep them on you know a, a more current version of Fluent UI because again they they provide this version to their users, users can write against it, um, and for them to move to a completely different one means the possibility of breaking a whole bunch of users or users having to go back and and do that manual labor of upgrading their applications to to work with the newest versions, and yeah it's I guess that balance where internally we we can move pretty fast and we can change things and break things and we're okay like kind of pushing that out to our applications and and them taking on some of that burden get new features possibly fix some changes that are introduced. But it's harder to do that on third-party developers that have built an app and just want to set it and forget it and, and not worry about it. So again, it's been a tough balance and then we're just trying to figure out what the what the correct balance is between those two. And as we run into those um, those kind of issues, where's the best place to for folks to get back, right? I know you mentioned the GitHub repo and and from the last I looked, there were, were quite a few. Is, is it an easy way that we, do we have to pick and choose or is there an overall place to go to capture these kind of feedback? With the fluent controls that I'm using, for example, right? Sure. Well, yeah, the, the, the Fluent UI website is, is definitely the, the best place to go for bugs specifically relating to the Fluent UI controls. So like specifically with SharePoint, I know they still support like a 5X and 6X version of Fluent UI and Fluent UI being on 7. Um, there's this large spread of code. So we, we are still maintaining a 5X and a 6X branch of um, of the code. So if there's a particular bug in 5X or 6X, we are able to make a fix to that and get that published. So if there is, yeah, if you do come across a bug, then the, the main challenge again is you fix that bug and we have to, that bug then has to get out into SharePoint. A lot of the challenge is, is that, that delta between the version that's actually running in SharePoint and that 5X or 6X branch that they're currently using and whatever is actually in the latest release. Because um, we can fix the bug, but until the bug actually gets pulled back in and uh, into the product, it's not going to help. And, and what's the way that the product teams work? Do they typically, uh, are they just on latest or are they being a bit more reserved and targeting particular releases? 
Yeah, again, I don't work directly with the teams to know yeah. what their like their cadence is, but I'm sure they're not just they're not just taking the latest batch every day. Um, I, I'm I'm hoping that they they update at a reasonable ish rate. Um, but I, I honestly, I'd have to look back at the numbers to see where they're sitting at. It's a challenge with well, we can build it, we can fix it, we can upgrade it. Or we can we can you know inf- uh, introduce that fix to one of those branches, but until that actually gets pulled into that framework, they're kind of beholden to whatever that that current version is. Uh, although I would think, uh, again, I'm not a, a JavaScript expert, but uh, to your point about bundling or including stuff in my bundle, w- would that would that work? Is that even an option? If there's something I need to have in the latest Fluent that's not in whatever my host is, uh, is that an option I can consider, or is that more trouble than it's worth? Personally, I haven't tried. Uh, again, it's not the space that I play in that much. I think it's possible to possibly bring in your own version of, of Fluent. I know v- different versions of React are probably the harder part, where you can't have multiple versions of React on the page. Um, so that might be the more of the sticking point, is needing, like, we use hooks inside of Fluent right now. So to use modern Fluent, you're going to need a modern-ish version of React. And if you don't have that in the space, this is a no-go. So um, I, I, there's certainly challenges there with um, with you know the TypeScript version and the React version. I think those are things that are probably going to run up against first. Um, again, I, I have not played with it, not not my space of, of work, but it's certainly something to, to check out. A while back, I subscribed to uh, notifications in the GitHub repo, and holy cow, is my inbox <laughs> busy. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, I, that's good and bad, right? And so what is, why are there so many releases? Is there a certain release policy that causes that? Are they all bug fixes? Can you at least talk a little bit about how that process works and what I'm seeing in there? Well, sure. For, for one, if you're subscribed to the Fluent UI repo, you're subscribed to a, a very large ecosystem of packages. Um, we subscribe to the monorepo philosophy where it's not just a single package that's coming out of the repo. Um, it's a, gosh, we probably have 30, 40 of them now of various packages of various sizes, um, some just small utility packages, some full UI frameworks, um, some styling libraries and so on and so forth that all live with under a single uh, a single repo. Um, and there's huge advantages of doing that where if you want to make a change to like, if there's if a bug in a component, but the bug is because of some styling issue in the styling package, you can create a single PR that fixes both. You don't have to go to the styling package, fix that, do a release, then pull that release into the component and then fix the component and push that out. You can do a change across all of those. There's also some negatives. But you're kind of coming across one of them of just the amount of noise that comes through because of that. So that, that's that's part of what you're running into. The other thing that you are running into is that we have a um, automatic release cycle that allows us to publish hourly, daily. Uh, daily is the current um, uh, kind of the, the current cadence, but we can hit a button and basically create a release of whatever is new within the entire repo. Based on every pull request that a user makes into the framework, if you've ever contributed to the open source framework, you'd, you'd write into this, you create a change file. And a change file describes what package did I change and what did I make, what kind of change did I make? What did I fix? What did I add? What did I do? Um, and that file actually gets pulled in with your commit. So we've got these little JSON files to describe all the changes that happened to all the various packages over a given time. So then we're ready to hit the button and say publish. We have a tool that goes through and looks at all of the changes 
And if there's a change log for any package, it will automatically kick off a release for that package. It'll automatically pull in all the notes that have been generated for that and create a, a, a set of release notes for that. So if you go into the release readme for any packages, or if you see on the actual GitHub release page, you'll see really great like notes describing on each release what has changed inside. And it's usually one, two, three, you know, four changes on each of the packages. And those are all generated by the developers that are contributing the code in. So you're hitting two things. There's a ton of packages within a single repo um, because we're doing a monorepo in there. And then secondly, we release daily um, so that you don't have to wait you know, four months, six months for some big, huge release to come out to finally get your code um, into the into the release again there's a advantages and disadvantages to that approach as well um, but it served us really well especially for our internal teams that like hey i have a bug i can't ship this app next week without fixing this bug what do i do oh i can go and fix the bug right now and know that tomorrow a release is going to come out that i can consume and then continue on with the application that we're trying to build. So it's become a powerful tool and probably one of the reasons that we've been so successful internally is just this recognition that the the turnaround time once I get a, a PR accepted is incredibly short. And do you have a lot of the teams that are consuming your library internally providing those PRs for like bug fixes or new features as well? Or have you got like a, a very dedicated core team that are kind of pumping all this out? Both. Yeah, we, we certainly couldn't do all the work by ourselves, but we certainly don't want to just leave it up to everyone to kind of manage and maintain the direction of the framework. Um, so we have a core team that, you know, reviews pull requests that is doing a lot of the more foundational work um, of, you know, whether it's a TypeScript bump or whether it's, you know, um, improving performance on, you know, some like the styling or something like that. Something that's going to affect all the controls across the entire framework. Um, but then we have teams like Outlook that have taken obviously a large vested interest in, you know, dates and date picker and calendar and those types of things where they mostly own that control. So if there's features they need to do or, st or a style change they need to do or a bug fix that's important, um, they will come in and do that work and create PRs against the, that component. Um, you know, and then we help get them through and just make sure the code's up to um, you know, what it needs to be within the, within the framework and we push that through. That's one of many examples of um, product teams that have taken vested interest in a control or have just come across a bug or a missing feature that they need to be able to move forward with their product where they can hop in and, and make that change and contribute and um, everyone gets to benefit from that improvement. And again, that's been one of those kind of magical experiences that um, you don't often, see, you didn't often see Microsoft a number of years ago where, you know, various product teams were getting together, you know, maybe hopping in Teams channel, discussing a problem, coming up with a solution, you know, five different teams deciding on this, and then someone going off and writing a PR into this shared framework. So just to see that kind of open source um, uh, open source approach and open source mentality applied to uh, something used within this company has been really exciting to see. Um, and it's been just a really good foundation as we move forward, building out more of these libraries, taking on that same mentality and being able to share the experiences we've had with those teams so they can hopefully have the same successes that we have. Yeah, it's awesome. From a controls perspective, um, you know, we do a lot in the graph team with obviously data that binds to a lot of the controls in 
fluent UI. What's where do you draw the line on what you how far up the stack you go? Because you know it's all about the design, the the rendering on the screen, but you don't really have a tie to data per se. Like you mentioned, the the people picker and and various other controls. To me, as a developer, that control isn't complete without being able to throw data at it. But you, you kind of that, where is that line with these controls? Again, the line we have kind of in that sand is that we want to be an open source library that allows anyone to build anything they want. And as soon as we start making assumptions as to um, you know how you're building your apps or how you're connecting to data or what connect or what data you're connecting to, we've kind of moved off of our existing charter. What we do want to do is we want to provide controls to the teams that are building those experiences out. We have a team that's building out like all the file picking and file sharing uh, functionality you see within uh, Outlook and, or, or OneDrive and SharePoint and teams. And they build that on top of Fluent UI, but it, that's the, it's a team that's building that experience, connecting to those APIs, connecting to those data sources, and we support them in doing that. So that's really the space we want to be at is providing those controls two teams that are building these much more complex data-rich experiences. Um, so they don't have to worry about UI. They don't have to worry about, well, what, you know, how do I build this button? How do I build this dropdown? They just have to figure out how do, what data do I populate it with and what do I do on various clicks to that UI? So whether it's file sharing, whether it is the people picker um, and like the, the people card and those types of things that you see within our applications, those are other teams that are building on top of Fluent UI um, that are building these experiences that either work internally or even at some points share out with with third parties as well as so like be able to bring you know uh, pull that code down and, and build something that connects to the graph that's cool yeah thank you yeah i can re- you know and to that point i can remember when i first seeing and I, I thought well why do they call it a persona that doesn't make sense it's a people and then i figure oh well you're not connected to people so it kind of <laughs> made sense in that regard right um you, it, so you've mentioned a couple times on on styling and themes and and it seems to me that that's changed somewhat recently based on at least in the react bit where there's this new semantic theming and and how do i get stuff look right uh, do, do you work in that area can you give us a talk about what the philosophy is around that or is that more of a uh, it depends answer <laughs> <laughs> um I, I give just some general background on theming and, and that i mean we again we started in OneDrive and sharepoint so we started in sharepoint and there's a large huge theming story that comes within sharepoint so out of the gate, um, uh, UI Fabric back back in the day had a very strong theming story. So being able to take a very large theming object and completely reskin a, a UI to be able to take on that theming. That legacy has definitely came, come with us as we move forward and has allowed us to do some really great things like, again, the, um, the file sharing and file picking, being able to take you know, a single set of, of uh, uh, a single UI built out of, out of Fluent UI controls and drop that into, say, Word and have it look like Word and take the same UI and drop it into Teams and have it look like Teams. The, the foundation we've built Fluent UI on allows our product teams to be able to build this experience once and then drop it in these various places and have it take on the theme of that application. So being able to build it once, deploy it out to these various um, endpoints has been powerful for us. And then one of the reasons the, the, the tool gets adopted so uh, so often is it gives you that out of the box. And you're not having to write, well, I do need to write a Teams theme for my UI. Now I need to write an Outlook 
theme for my UI. You know, you get that directly from using Fluent UI. Moving forward, we, we want to do a whole lot more with theming because um, we recognize that you know, it's it's not just moving from you know app to app, but it might be that, um, you know, the example of always like, you're Coca-Cola and you want everything to be Coca-Cola red and you want everything to have this style of button and this style of checkbox, this style of dropdown. And you want this app to just fit into your ecosystem and it not look anything like Microsoft at all because it's, you know, this is your experience and your users and your customers. And we want to be able to support that as well. So moving forward, we we're trying to make theming even more flexible, um, even easier to do uh, and safer to do as well. One of the challenges with theming, especially on the web, is that you know, with CSS, you can basically theme anything to look any way that you want. Um, but the challenges with just throwing CSS at things is that it becomes extremely fragile um, if that uh, if the code underlying ever changes, if a class name changes, if you know the, the the order of the DOM changes, your your styling that you lay on top of something can completely change. So you're talking to two uh, SharePoint developers here. Yeah. So <laughs> we're we're both sitting here cringing, going, "Yep, been there, yep. done that, got the T-shirt." Yep. <laughs> Because the thing is, we, we provided like real basic like theming variables that you could use. Like, yay, okay, you can change some colors. But what happens when you want to round mm-hmm. some corners? What happens when you want right, to right. you know, add a border or a shadow or something like that? Working in this environment where there's a UI framework and a bunch of places you could use it, um, the, the, the contract that you get from using class names is very fragile. Like the CSS class names are amazingly powerful like to select exactly the right thing. But if that is your contract to be able to style some UI that's owned by some Somebody else. It's a very, very weak contract. One that's very hard to enforce. One that's very hard for us to be able to work under. Because if we're trying to fix a bug, and the only way to fix a bug is to wrap a div around something, that's going to break a bunch of people. And like, wow, you can't like wrap a div around something. So what we're trying to move towards is we, we want to allow incredible customization without having to resort to a whole bunch of class class name overrides within the UI. And, and that basically means giving you a lot more hooks into making changes to the core styling elements of a control. Um, and what that comes down to is a set of tokens. So we haven't talked much about yet about Fluent UI 8. So we're um, we're currently on seven on the basically the same seven branch that Fabric was on, uh, and we're doing a large chunk of work, large chunk of work for what Fluent UI eight is going to look like, and really the next generation of all of uh, the Fluent UI uh, frameworks. And one of the the big things that we're betting on, um, that really the industry is betting on, is the idea of tokens, of taking these design values, these border values, these hex values, these font size values, and and basically elevating those up into a set of style. Uh, style tokens, style props that can be passed into um, any control. So if you want to change the border width, if you want to change the border color, anything that's important to that control that the designer says, this is a value that should be used on this control, we want to elevate that up into the theme to allow a user to make a change to that. And then the big advantage there is that you get, a, you get a semantic value, you get the semantic token. So rather than, hey, there's a class name I can point at and just throw styles at, um, now you've got on a component, you've got like a checkbox and you have like, if you ever styled a checkbox within, within 
fluent. It's kind of crazy because it's all like pseudo elements and like there's like three different places the colors actually applied and like it's it's challenging to find all the places to style it. So what we really should be doing is is pulling that into a single semantic value to say, hey, give us the color you want for this checkbox. And the four places that we knew to apply that, we'll apply that to the right places. And if you ever need to change it, just give us a new value for that token. And and that's a space we want to move to where you're not having to write complex selectors to be able to make complex overrides and complex DOM structures. We sh we want to be able to provide you with a set of tokens that allow you to customize and really make whatever changes that you want to a component and in a way that is type safe and that is an API we can commit to. And the, the nice thing about that is that color, if we decide to change the way the checkbox is implemented because of you know advances in the framework or just new techniques or whatever, we can still make that change, completely destroy the DOM, but take that token and still semantically apply it to the DOM, then our contract is still valid and we haven't broken that contract with the users. So that's the goal of moving forward with tokens is making sure that you don't have to do all those overrides, that you have the tools to be able to make a lot of style changes to a component. Um, I'm sure it won't be every style change possible um, because that would take an infinite number of tokens, but hopefully we can we can catch those like 95% uh, cases and allow you to make the changes you need without having to um, resort to those overrides. Or if you have to overrides, you have a small set of them, you test those whatever within any update because you know that's outside of the kind of the supported scope. But right now we, we, we don't have support to be able to make some of those changes that we know are necessary. So again, tokens should hopefully give you enough tools to allow you to get the work done that if you have to step outside of them, you know that you're kind of stepping into dangerous ground and you just have to be careful with it. it, it, it but some of that is available, I think, in 7 because I was I was working inside of a, a SharePoint framework thing and I was trying to find whatever accent color was the alternating background on a list. And then I stumbled upon this list alternating background token. I'm like, hey, that's exactly what I want. <laughs> so I think some of that is available now, though, right? It's not all part of 8. Yeah, there, there are some semantic. Um, so we, we call them, I think, just semantic values within uh, Fluent UI. And those actually have been around for a long time. Those are actually from, I think, might even be SharePoint naming and SharePoint values for the past. Um, the big challenge with those is they are all global. Uh, and so one of the changes we want to make is moving towards um, uh, component-based tokens uh, because all of those tokens are just global namespace. Yes, they have more semantic names to them, but they could be affecting anything. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of cases where people have, have built UI, even within Fluent UI, that like, wait, why are they using that token? Like, okay, well, because that token is the right value they needed at the time, but it doesn't necessarily semantically connect to it or you wouldn't expect it to connect. So if you went and changed that semantic token, you might go, whoa, the, these other three things change. I didn't expect those to change. Uh, instead of populating the global space with like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these tokens, we want to move to a space where each component has a contract. You know the tokens that are used in that component. You know that those those tokens are only used in that component and not other components. And you have a, a much safer contract that you don't. You, we're not changing something, and you know something uh, something breaks. You don't expect to change. Yeah. Again, we have that concept currently with semantic variables. But there's a lot of the same challenges with it and that there's no inherent contract of where they're used. Um, it's very difficult to know what tokens are being used on a component because there's no there's no interface to connect those together. So again, that's the change we're hoping to make uh, within eight. Um, with all this, the very web orientated discussion. And I just wonder, obviously, with Teams being an Electron app, um, I'm assuming that they benefit from this as well. Uh, how, how does this work for things like Windows applications or Word on an iPad? 
because I, as, as a Swift developer myself, like that is not using any kind of web technology. That is all kind of like managed code. Are you, is Fluent UI spreading across those areas as well so that those clients benefit too? Or is it kind of exactly focused on web? Oh, no, it's definitely spread across. Okay. So um, again, like I, I've come from the fabric world. That was obviously React and web from the start. Yeah, yeah. Over the years, actually, even under the, the fabric umbrella, we actually started building out a set of iOS and Android controls uh, within kind of the fabric theme that have also since then switched over to Fluent UI as well. Oh, cool. So um, we are building uh, controls in Kotlin and in Swift um, mm -hmm. to allow you to get that, you know, that Fluent experience within those native platforms you know, as well as on Mac. So regardless of the platform you're on, the language you're using, we're building controls to allow you to do that. That's really cool. Then the other goal, obviously, with these tokens is that being able to elevate these styles up to something that is not like a class name. That's not a CSS way to apply styles. We're actually able then to reuse those tokens on any platform that will would follow suit. Yeah, right. That makes sense. So if you want a button on, you know, um, say like WinUI to be able to follow the same styling as in you know, Fluent UI for the web, we'd be able to take that same token value and and spread that across each of those platforms. And if we need to make a change to like a font size or a color or like a disabled color for, you know, a contrast ratio or something like that. We could actually push those out to various platforms uh, with a single set of code. And that's, again, that's kind of the promise of tokenizing a lot of these uh, theme values or these uh, style values. That's really cool. What else is next uh, on your roadmap? What are any other highlights that we, we can look forward to as, as V8 comes down? Um, I think one of the big ones that we're, we're looking to do with 8, I, I mean, there's a number of things we could dig into, but um, I think one of the things I'm excited about is taking a fresh approach on the way that we do styling and the way, the way we, we do theming within web controls. Um, in the past, uh, you know, there's been this really big push to moving everything into CSS and JS. Um, be able to have runtime calculation of styles, be able to have runtime calculations of themes, um, so you can create those styles on the fly. Um, that has been, you know, it's exciting what you're able to do with that, but it comes obviously with the cost of the overhead of being able to calculate those styles on the fly and a litany of issues that, that come with scaling that and performance and, and so forth. One of the things we're looking to do with 8 is to make a, a, a large change to break away from that so that um, the only contract that our controls have are class names. Um, so that all you need to do is provide class names to the component um, and then whatever class names or styles are attached to those class names, those styles get applied to the component. And there's a couple of really important changes this makes. Um, one is that if you don't want to use our existing CSS and JS solution, and you just want to apply supply your own styles, you don't need the overhead, you don't need the weight of our solution to be able to say, hey, I've got my style sheet, I just want to plug that in. So that's number one, that's really huge, is that you don't, that the components aren't bundled with that, which they currently are. Um, the other one that's actually a, kind of a, a, a nice extra outcome that comes from this is now we've got a set of class names that is just class names that define all the various styles at the various modalities, um, you know, open, closed, selected, um, disabled, you know, all the various states that it would be in that are completely divorced from React, from Fluent UI, from anything. If you wanted to build out a new control in just static HTML or in Vue or in Angular, here's a set of class names to define all the styles of these components. 
and has nothing to do with any type of runtime, any type of you know JavaScript overhead that you'd be able to use those those class names to build out your own UI with if you needed to. So it's just this is really interesting reflection point where we can improve performance dramatically by not having to um, calculate all the styles all the time on every render. Um, we get a really clean separation between the two. Components become more reusable. Styles become more reusable. And we get to a place where um, we've got that proper separation between the two that uh, you know people have wanted for, for quite a long time with our controls. I mean, other than uh, listening to this podcast to see current state, how are you engaging with the community that are using this? Because I'm assuming from looking at the number of forks and clones and different things on the GitHub repo, this is pretty popular. So what avenues are you using to keep the community up to date with what's going? I mean, I love the change logs and I love the context of the way that you're doing those um, change uh, messages, and I think we're probably going to steal that for the graph SDK work too. <laughs> Happy to help. But how else? How else are you working with people? Um, I think a lot of it is through GitHub issues. Um, it's, a, it's a very active issue queue. Um, it, unfortunately, these numbers keep going up, but it just means we, we, we're getting more engagement and getting more questions and 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 issues and and so forth. Um, so that's certainly the first place to go if you have a problem with the framework or if you have questions. That's a great place to go. Like we have a couple pinned um, issues that you know highlight. Uh, some of the stuff we talked about at Build this list last year, uh, our V8 roadmap, or other other pressing issues that might be you know in the front of people's minds that are coming to, to Fluent UI. So definitely go and check out the, the issue queue. There might be conversations already starting there. We do all of our work within GitHub. I don't even think we have like a, a, a an ADO or whatever the acronym is now for for our, our internal um, tracking. We do all of our work within in GitHub. So if there is a question you have about kind of what we're doing what we're working on, that is the place to go take a look at it. Um, we um, have tags for every component. So if you're curious what we're working on with a, with a particular component, you can check that out. So we, we try and do a lot of work. So it's really easy to come in and get a lot of info from our um, from the issue queue and GitHub specifically. We're pretty active on social media through Twitter as well. So if there's ever questions that come up, um, we try and publicize anything that's happening there. Uh, we're looking to probably use that a bit more now that we've moved over from uh, our old like office UI fabric or whatever our tag was. We now have the actual Fluent UI Twitter handle. So we'll be the voice of Fluent UI moving forward and trying to be a little more intentional there with um, what we're going to be sharing and, and going forward with that. I believe we've got some plans to try and get some more content out and be a little bit more proactive in that space as well. So kind of keep an eye on the Twitter account. That's probably the best place for kind of up-to-date news uh, as well as the issue queue for um, kind of where the projects are going and, and the changes we're making and uh, the plans we have for future releases. Thanks a lot for your time. I know it's a, quite a lengthy one and thanks to listeners for sticking it through to the end, but, but this is great stuff and I uh, really appreciate you taking time out of your day to, to give us this info. Hey, appreciate you having me on. It's uh, always uh, good to talk about it and uh, a lot of fun. Yeah, that was great. Thanks for listening to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast. Please follow us on Twitter at M365DevPodcast and check out our show notes at www.m365devpodcast.com. To help us spread the word, we'd really appreciate it if you could retweet our episode tweets and give us a review on iTunes. That's all, folks. 